Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM and it's a special edition for episode 12. We're looking at the best bits, a compilation of our highlights across the past 11 episodes. We'll hear from the legend that is Jancis Robinson, OBE-MW. We'll hear from David Gleave, MW, about his passion for Nebbiolo. Sarah Abbott, MW, as well, on the wonder of old vines. We'll hear from Kelly Stevenson. She's fascinating on how you buy for airlines. Mick O'Connell, MW, will talk about his passion for Chardonnay and his aversion to Chardonnay snobbery. We'll hear from Dawn Davis, MW, about tequila. And Freddie Bulmer will be here talking about natural wine and what he thinks about clean wine. That's all coming up over the next hour. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. We begin with our special guest this week, described by Decanter as the most respected wine critic in the world and voted the world's most influential too. Uh, she was the first person outside the trade to earn the letters MW, Master of Wine, after her name, and she subsequently added OBE as well. Co-author of the Oxford Companion to Wine, the World Atlas of Wine and Wine Grapes, and quite a few others. Uh, she also runs her eponymous website and helps the Queen choose wines to serve her guests. So I'm uh, beyond chuffed to say she's found the time to talk to us on the drinking hour. Uh, Jancis, uh, welcome. Thank you very much indeed. It would be easy, um, though a bit lazy, to assume that you were kind of steeped in wine culture from a, an early age. But um, I was looking, uh, doing my research. The reverse is actually true, isn't it? I know you're a very good researcher, David. Um, yes, it is. But then I'm so old that practically none of my contemporaries were brought up with wine. I had to wait till I got to university. I went to Oxford and it all felt very exciting um, after having been brought up in a tiny village in Cumbria. And I had a boyfriend then whose father gave him a bit too much money. And some of that was spent on whining and dining me to the extent that I actually became the restaurant correspondent of the Oxford University magazine. Um, and we went one night to a restaurant called The Rose Revive. And for some reason, I think because the name sounded lovely, we ordered a bottle of 1959 Chambol Musigny Les Amoureuses, a wine that nowadays I, I wouldn't be able to afford, but then was better than the student plonk that was my regular drinking. Um, and I, I could sense that in this liquid, there was so much, you know, there was history, geography, psychology, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I didn't, I didn't get up from the table saying, right, I'm going to be a wine writer, but it certainly lit the flame. But what most people don't realise is that back then, and we're talking about the early 70s, the subjects of wine and food had nothing like the status that they have today. They were seen as being kind of terminally frivolous. You wouldn't if I'd said to my friends, I'm going to become a wine writer, they'd have said, what a waste of an Oxford education. You know, <laughs> very different, isn't it? It is. Yeah, you've been writing about wine since 1975. Um, and you describe that as prehistory as far as modern wine is concerned. Uh, so what did you generally encounter back then that's so different today? Well, it's more 
what I didn't encounter. I mean, then wine was German or sherry or Bordeaux or questionable Burgundy because we'd only just joined the EU and until then people could put any old liquid in the bottle and call it pomade or Nuit Saint-Georges or something. Um, so there was nothing like um, California, Australia, um, even Italian wine didn't have anything like the reputation and the, and the great array of names that we're, we're used to today. Uh, it, the, the, the range was just so much narrower. Mm, there's a tendency, especially I think in this country, to look towards the past with kind of rose-tinted spectacles on. But this suggests otherwise. It suggests actually things have really improved a lot. Oh, they have. And not, it's not just the choice and the range, but it's the quality. Honestly, when I first started drinking wine, two out of three bottles were technically faulty. They, they smelt of chemicals. Um, you had to, if it was white, you know, you would chill it to death so that all you got was the liquid. Uh, you didn't want the smell. And uh, nowadays, I mean, as you know, to find a technically faulty wine is almost impossible. The winemaking standards have risen so fast. I mean, the, the, the most common fault today, I suppose, is having a faulty cork, which imbues the wine with a certain sort of n nasty, damp cardboard kind of smell, mm. that not making you not really want to drink it. But um, that's not the fault of the wine. I mean, overall, the, stand, the quality of wine today is, is amazingly high. And what's a bit ironic, sorry, I'm getting on a hobby horse here, um, is that the, the quality gap between the best and the worst wines in the world has got narrower and narrower as everyday wine becomes easily drinkable. Whereas the price gap between the top and the bottom of the ranks, if you like, has got wider and wider. Um, I hold, I, I, uh, that's a whole other subject, but maybe, you know, it's because wine has become something that billionaires want to invest in. So they've, they've ramped up the prices of the most sought after wines, for instance, whereas at the bottom end, it's a very competitive market and um, most basic wine, they can't really afford to um, jack up the prices too much. Although our well, government does its best with its with the duties it imposes. And your uh, role with the royal household must have um, done similar. I, I don't know how much you can say about that without, we don't want you sent to the tower, but... Uh, no, well, I, 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 there is an article on dancesfromson.com and, and I obviously had to run that past the palace and, you know, make sure they were happy about it. Um, but much to my dismay about, and, and it was published in the Financial Times, actually, for which I write every Saturday. And then much to my dismay a few years later, because I think I wrote it probably in about 2013 or 14, something like that. Um, the Daily Mail lifted it wholesale with a whole load of photographs of me, a double page spread, making it look as though it had come from me. Oh. And of course, and an article in the Daily Mail looks a little different to an article in the FT. Mm. And um, I think my fellow members of the Royal Household Wine Tasting Committee were horrified, thinking I'd sold my story to the Daily Mail. Of course, I didn't have any, didn't know anything at all about it. Um, but that's the way of 
of the press. Anyway, it's fun. Um, of, although, of course, we haven't had any, and it also, what I love about it, 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 we make our selections based on blind tastings, i.e. tasting wines where you don't know what they are. And I love doing that because you don't have any preconceptions. You're at, just focused on the quality of the wine in the bottle. So actually, those those tastings at Buckingham Palace are some of the few that I can do nowadays that are absolutely blind. But of course, we haven't been able to hold any, you know, for a month, for well over a year. And I don't know when we'll be holding our, our next one. And of course, and the, the palace hasn't been able to entertain. So the stocks won't have been running low. So there probably isn't a lot of pressure to do, do another tasting, actually. Yeah. And this is, you're choosing things for functions. You're not choosing what yeah. uh, the, the, Her Majesty has on a Saturday night or, or, or whatever. Uh, well, I dare say, shoot. I don't know how many casual Saturday night suppers the poor old queen gets to have actually, in a normal year. Probably not that many. No, choosing wines for all sorts of occasions, you know, and the great volume of wine is for very big receptions. Yeah. You're married to a silhouette, uh, famously, uh, if you go onto your website, because uh, Nick, Nick Landers, uh, your husband's articles are, are on the site. He's he's uh, always uh, silhouetted, so he's not identified, uh, as is the case uh, with uh, with most, um, if not all, uh, leading restaurant critics. Um, when you dine together, um, who gets the wine list? In France, pretty much routine him, um, unless it's a very um, cosmopolitan sommelier who might recognise me. Um, in London, probably more often me than him. Um, if it's uh, if it's if it's got a, a kind of wine savvy um, waiter, um, but it is crazy, isn't it? Well, and if Nick handed the wine list, he just immediately hands it to me. Last night, for the first time for ages, I had dinner with a, a wine professional who sells millions of pounds worth of wine a week, probably. Well, certainly a year, um, and he. He, he was handed the wine list and he handed it straight to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the fact that that happens. I just, and it's terrible, but it's also just, it, it is actually quite funny as well in, in, yes. a, in, a, in a terrible way. I'm not going to ask you what your favourite wine is because it's very tempting to do that, but you've already said uh, you you can't answer that question. So I'm not even going to dare. But, but I, do, I do really appreciate you giving up. Uh, I know you're extraordinarily busy. So I really appreciate your time uh, talking to us on The Drinking Hour. It's, it's always a, a pleasure to, uh, to talk to you, Jancis. Well, a pleasure for me. Thank you very much. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Now it's time for our Desert Island Drink, where we invite a leading professional to share with us their passion for a particular grape variety, a wine, a whole region or a spirit. Making his choice for us today is Master of Wine, David Gleave who's the boss of Liberty Wines, voted the IWSC 2021 Wine Distributor of the Year. Uh, firstly, David, welcome and congratulations on that accolade. Thank you very much, David. You've chosen Nebbiolo as your desert island grape. Uh, tell us why. I think it's, I mean, I first visited Barolo, which is that the sort of the home, if you like, or the heartland of Nebbiolo um, in, in 1983. So, you know, it's just 30, 
um, almost 38 years ago. And I'm more fascinated in the variety today um, than I was back then, um, because I think it's just, it's just, it's, got so many shapes it's it's got a an amazing sort of intensity um an aromatic complexity um and a real delicacy that just it makes it endlessly fascinating i've never got tired of it and i i said it's almost like the more i drink the the more i want to drink so uh, i think it's a variety that's um that's just um, has so much for for everyone so that's why um on a desert island you could never get tired of it Ah, well, that's a very good choice then. Was there a particular epiphany uh, in 1983 with Nebbiolo? Because it does tend to charm people, doesn't it? It does. I, I mean, I know some a very good friend of mine, Michael Hill-Smith um, of Shaw and Smith in Australia. It took me close to 30 years to convince him of the merits of, of Nebbiolo. Um, but once he finally sort of found found it, he, he um, he's never stopped buying it. But um, for me... I think you know my great mentor in the wine business was a guy, a uh, chap called Nick Belfridge, who wrote a couple of books on Italian wine, and you know knows more, um, has forgotten more about Italy than most people know. And <laughs> he introduced me to Nebbiolo in the um, early 1980s. And in those days, the style was very different to the way it is today. But I can remember some of those. You know, it, it's a sign of how things have changed. That the the vintage that was current in say 1983. Were, was 1971 and 1974. Um, and those wines were, you know, they were older fashion. They had a slightly bovrily character on the nose. They'd been aged for a long time in barrel. Um, but there was something there that just was, was intriguing. Um, I suppose as far as a particular epiphany, um, there was, a, I really remember a, a brilliant, it was 1971 um, Barolo from the... Um, San Giuseppe Vineyard from a producer called Cavallotto. Um, and it just sort of hinted to me at what Nebbiolo could be. And I think, you know, Cavallotto still make, you know, outstanding wines, um, but so do any number of other producers in, in the region. Back in those days, there were a handful of producers who made good wines. Today, there's well over a hundred, I'd say. Would it be fair to describe Nebbiolo as a slightly mercurial variety, um, sometimes sublime, frequently sublime, uh, sometimes a bit trickier? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a very fair description. Um, it's, um, I think probably Angelo Gaia put it best. He's, of course, the, probably the best known producer in, in Barolo and Barbaresco and, and, and one of the best known in, in Italy and has done a huge amount for, for Italian wine. And I remember asking him once, this was you know, probably 30 years ago, I said, uh, do you think, because he's planted Chardonnay and Cabernet, and I think, do you think you'll ever plant Pinot Noir? And he, 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 he speaks very good English, and he said, said to me, he said, no, emphatically, he said, I already have one bastard in the vineyard, I don't need another. And, <laughs> and I think that is very much sort of um, Nebbiolo. Uh, it is very difficult to grow, very difficult in the winery, requires um, incredible skill in the vineyard, um, and then careful, careful attention um, in the winery. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Old vines. Sometimes you see it mentioned on the label. Uh, it's usually a sign of something finer, something to treasure 
Perhaps you might even pay a premium for it. But can you honestly say it goes much further than that? Well, Master of Wine, Sarah Abbott, would like you to go a lot further. In fact, she wants to galvanise a global movement to celebrate and protect old vines, which is quite an ambition and a worthy one. And she's here to tell us why. Sarah, hello. Hello, David. How are you? Thank you for joining us on The Drinking Hour this morning. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. And, you know, thank you for the opportunity. Well, you're welcome. An obvious starting point. uh, Why should we care? about old vines? Good question. And on this, I would like to borrow a phrase actually from Jancis Robinson, Master of Wine, who said about 10 years ago that really heritage old vineyards are the wine world's equivalent of sort of the um, national, um, international wildlife <laughs> trust. You know, they they are a source of not just like grapevine diversity, but they also are basically the living embodiment of often centuries of agriculture and human culture. And the reason we should care about them is because we are losing them at a very fast rate because, frankly, they take a bit more effort. They take more hands-on attention and they are really not They're absolutely not conducive to high production, modern agricultural techniques, but they are special and we should care because if we don't start caring, they're all going to go. And once they've gone, they're gone. Yeah, well, that is a, you've articulated why we should uh, care about it. What prompted you personally to take up the cudgels on this? Because you, you really have, you've gone for it big time. Oh, well, I am just one person who cares about this stuff. There are many famous and cult and visionary people who have been advocating for this kind of appreciation actually for about 30 years. I was inspired to get involved because, well, I've always cared about them. I'm really interested in the heritage of wine, the history of wine, and the way in which the heritage of wine and vines really tells the story of humanity. That's why I love wine, basically. And I was prompted for this particular project for this at this time because I was approached by some a company who wanted to launch a range of specific old vine wines that would then go to support vineyard heritage. And my response to that was that, look, um, just trying to do this as a single brand on your own, it won't get you anywhere because the designation old vine or vieville or however you say it in various different countries, it's meaningless basically because it has no regulation it has no protection like so for example if you say to a normal human you know free range chicken they have a Mm. concept in their head immediately of how that produce has been raised as opposed to battery farm chicken now people then decide whether they want free range or battery farm but the point is they have they have a concept that there's a difference that there's a difference ethically, culturally, 
and probably um, in terms of kind of flavor and quality as well. And yet, when we talk about old vines in wine, although invariably they are associated with a certain approach, which is all holistic, it's good for societies, it very much is associated with high quality, that idea hasn't really been communicated outside of perhaps a very small audience of producers and connoisseurs. So so I wanted to get involved because I am really passionate about communicating messages that I think are important to help good business be done. And that came together. I was supported by two fantastic partners, Leo Austin and Alan Griffiths, MW. We co-founded a, a nonprofit and I've been enormously supported by so many people in wine and it's really taken off. I was reading, doing my research, some of the evangelizing about this project and it's wonderful you must be so so encouraged um uh, tamlin curran in uh, writing for jancis uh, wrote a, a beautiful piece about the first of your um conferences that uh, that you had uh, a, a few months ago and i know we have another one coming up which we'll talk about in a second um, just so i'm clear when you're talking about an old vine if i'm a vine how old do i have to be to get your attention ah oh, that's a really good question and it varies from place to place. The first thing to say is that vines respond to their environment in different ways. And some climates are kind of more aging to a vine than others. <laughs> so um, we have taken as a baseline, the number that is adopted by a couple of the most cohesive old vine support groups that do exist in certain countries. So we take as a baseline 35 years of age. Now, that's the minimum age that you see certified, for example, in the South African old vine project, a fantastic project. And also it's the minimum age that you see certified for the Barossa old vine charter. Having said that, David, there are plenty of people, winemakers in Spain, uh, France, um, and Italy, actually, who would say 35, that's not very old. The, the thing is that, you know, South Africa, for example, is quite the hard yards if you're a vine. And 35 years of age is not just the point at which actually you tend to get the key factors that are associated with balance and quality, but also... 35 years is um, an absolutely ripe time when vines are dug up and replaced. Ah, so if you scoop them up into your system at around that age, obviously we're talking about vines that are being managed well. You know, um, just because something is old doesn't mean that it's great, but there is absolutely a correlation between people who are interested in planting a vine for the long term and everything that entails, people who are interested in that are generally then very committed to sustainable agricultural practices, regenerative practices in the sense that you don't just, you don't just say, I'm not doing any harm. You actually use the quality of what you produce to benefit the community. It usually means that 
you see very often they will be working in terms of their agricultural practices with a minimal or no pesticides um, or synthetic herbicides. You know, it's it's immediately linked to this kind of long-term soil health agriculture. I think that's one of the reasons that it's so powerful. And are you being kind of picky here about which vines we're talking about? Because, uh, you know, I can imagine it's very easy to uh, romanticise an old vine Riesling, whereas if next door there's, uh, you know, a 50-year-old Muller-Turgau, is that going to have your affections, uh, your attention in the same way? Are you talking about all vines here? That is a great question. And yes, you are. Because... Very often, what happens with really wealth, I mean, first of all, what you tend to find about many heritage vineyards is that they're in the most fantastic locations quality-wise, and they were planted there because they were planted there at a time when the only thing the farmer had to rely on was basically his his or her own skill and kind of work, and putting the right vine in the right place, you know. So this is why a lot of them, for example, are dry farmed, you know, they're unirrigated, they're bush trained, etc. And all of these are natural adaptations to keeping the vine healthy and alive for as long as possible because they didn't have a quick fix, you know. <laughs> so they didn't have irrigation, they didn't have mechanization. So they would just put it in the best place. Um, Now, with regard to varieties, there's a couple of issues there. One issue is that we have fashions in grape varieties. And the fashion at the moment is for this huge internationalization of grape varieties. And I heard one sommelier describe it as cultural colonialism in that there's Uh, this real preference. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Well, look, first of all, France is fantastic. France was my introduction to wine and makes amazing wine. The thing is that what is happening around the world is that the plantings of vine varieties are really dominated by about 20 main varieties. And they tend to be what you call the internationals. Actually, these internationals are are predominantly classic French varieties. Um, Now, these kind of fashions are... Uh, you know, in the scheme of things, they are short-lived. You will find, for example, that you'll have quirky, lesser-seen, lesser-known varieties that have fallen out of fashion or, you know, um, have been ignored in, in favor of just more commercially fashionable varieties. But actually, they are brilliant there. They belong there. And this happens everywhere. I was speaking to um, a actually a wine a winemaker, a very boutique winemaker in England, who had managed to get hold of some a vineyard of nearly 50-year-old Solaris, which is making absolutely brilliant wine. Oh, but wow. basically that that is destined to be grubbed up and replanted with Chardonnay. Yeah. So so you get um, the whole thing about this kind of approach to viticulture is that it is long-term and it's deeply connected to place and people. 
And I think that's what's powerful about it. And they they essentially are doing everything with a view that this is here for a while. This is going to be here for two generations. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Have you ever wondered how the drinks you're offered in your airline seat are selected? Whether it's cattle or club class, uh, those economy miniatures or the seriously pricey stuff at the front, how are they chosen? Do some wines work better than others at altitude? And can it really be true that what we don't drink goes down the sink? Our next guest has devoted her professional life to choosing what we drink at 36,000 feet. Kelly Stevenson was the buying manager for British Airways until last year, and she's now a consultant pairing wines with airlines. Kelly, hello. Thanks for joining us. Hi, David. Thank you very much for having me. So tell us, uh, first of all, what you did for BA precisely and, and how you got into that. Yeah, so when I was at British Airways, I was the head of wine and beverages for the customer experience team, meaning that I selected all of the drinks, um, wine being the the most varied part of of that selection, across all of the different cabins and the lounges in, in the BA network. So that meant that we'd choose a selection of different wines for the Economy World Traveller cabin, and they were usually in the quarter bottles, the cute little miniatures that you referred to earlier. Mm-hmm. And then we choose wines for um, further down the plane into business class, and then the fine wines are first. But one thing that was always uh, very, very unique to, to British Airways, and only one other airline, but one thing that we always had great pride in was the Concorde seller, that even beyond 2003, when Concorde sadly left us, we still continued to promote the Concorde seller, and those fine wines that we had in that seller would go through and be special editions in first class, which still very much is a cabin that, that British Airways wanted to keep flying when, when other airlines decided, decided not to. So yeah. a really varied selection of wine. And then some wines would be bought specifically for in-flight, for the network across all of the, the route network in the air. And some wines would be bought specifically for the lounges. And obviously a lounge environment is very much like a bar or restaurant where you're on the ground. So on mm. the ground mean factors that are not as complicated as when you're choosing something to be in a metal tube at 36,000 feet. Yeah, so intriguingly, wines do taste different uh, when we're at 36,000 feet. Can you explain, um, without getting too scientific, why that is and what the effect is? Absolutely, and I'm glad you asked me not to be too scientific because because that will make it a lot easier for me to explain. Basically, it's not the wines that change, it's more your taste buds that change. So when you're, when you're up at altitudes, there's high pressure and there's also um, uh, a sort of numbing sensation on your taste buds. So what that means is when you're selecting both food and drinks for working as well as they possibly can in flight, you're really looking for something that is the best it can possibly be and works to the extremes. So for example, if you want a fresh Sauvignon Blanc from the Marlborough region in New Zealand, you really want it to be fresh and bursting passion fruit and bursting with tropical fruits that it really says, I'm a Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand. You don't want something that's quite neutral and that has a little bit of an oak influence because A, 
that's not typical of what you'd expect from Marlborough Sauvignon. And B, that's going to potentially show as off balance in the air, even though it would be perfectly good at tasting on the ground. Similarly, if you want a Rioja full of oak, full of that beautiful coconut, vanilla, nutmeg, then it really should show that in droves on the ground because you're going to lose a little bit of that in the air. So anything that really accentuates itself on the ground is great to use in the air because dumbing down of the senses is really what happens inside an aircraft. So there's some seriously expensive stuff in the likes of first class. Uh, Laurent Perrier Grand Siècle uh, springs to mind. I don't know if they still do that. But um, is there, I mean, this is a huge amount of money uh, going out the door to, to buy that stuff. Um, because of the prestige factor of the cabin, do the producers kind of give the airline a bit of a discount or something to have that in the lounge or in the posh bit of the plane? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we had at British Airways, and they still obviously do, have very, very good relationships with chateau and wineries all across the world over. And it's very nice, I think, when you're working in that environment, and we all know how friendly the wine industry is, it's very nice to have partnerships with people rather than just a transactional um, supply, supply, supply us with products, we'll pay for your products. The partnership element is very, very important. And for that reason, we used to work with Laurent Perrier and I used to work personally with um, Laurent Perrier to engage with the customers, not just by pouring the wine, but offering events, uh, be it that at summer or Christmas, trying to have um, suppers where we could engage with the guests that were coming on board British Airways to show the wines. Laurent Perrier were very involved, were very involved in that process as well. But to your question, if you consider an aircraft, it considers, let's say, an A380 with over 450 customers. In a first-class cabin, there's, a, there's usually only ever a maximum of eight customers. So think of those, say, 460 passengers. Only eight of those are first-class customers. So whilst the product, because of the ticket price and all of the experience you're getting as a first-class customer, is more expensive, it is actually only going to a very small number of the people that are flying on that aircraft versus the wines that will be chosen for the 350 odd people down the back in economy class. Yeah, good point. And if I make a wine uh, or a, uh, let's say a gin, a spirit of some kind, um, this is where you now work, the area you work in as a consultant. How do I get my product uh, onto an airline? Yes, well, it's really interesting actually, because I left British Airways just before the pandemic hit last year, actually, to set up Jetvine Consultancy Limited, which looks at across all of the drinks trade. So everything from, like you say, gin, whiskey, soft drinks, juices, and to the wines of the world, looks at what's out there, what do the airlines want, and also how to get certain wines onto those aircraft and onto those different airlines. Now, the opportunities are endless because, like I said, you've got those different cabin breakdowns and therefore a different demographic and a different target for each of those cabins. The fine wines of first class, the um, more entry-level wines for economy class, the lounge environment where you've got much more space and you've got more opportunity for a back shelf and a wine list that's unending, like your Michelin-style restaurants versus the inside aircraft environment there's, where there's space restrictions. So there's so much opportunity for so many drinks to go on board. And what I do is I always explain to people that the brand awareness you get from pouring your drinks on an aircraft is amazing. So look at the price point. Look at the price point and think of it as 50% selling your wares, obviously, but 50% is, is marketing potential. And if you, if you consider it and 
put your marketing budget into the price point. Um, airlines budgets have um, have remained not the healthiest, not the most unhealthy in the industry. So you have to consider what price you're trying to charge. And also consider that the environment is duty free as well. And the same goes for crews on ships. You've got this environment where the duty and tax is still within within the international waters. And therefore, you've got to look at your price point in, in that consideration as well. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Now it's time for our Desert Island Drink, where we invite a leading professional to share with us their passion for a particular grape variety, a wine, a whole region or a spirit. Making his choice today for us is Master of Wine Mick O'Connell, a consultant, a wine merchant in Dublin, Neighbourhood Wine, and a member of the judging committee at the International Wine and Spirit Competition, for which uh, I also judge, although I'm not on the judging committee, I should say. Um, Mick, welcome to The Drinking Hour. It's fantastic to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You've chosen to bring to your desert island uh, a very popular grape variety. Um, it's Chardonnay. Uh, why? The one and only Chardonnay. Um, good question. Good question. People, I, I get asked all the time, as I'm sure you do, David, what, what's your favourite wine? What's your favourite this? What's your favourite that? And I always kind of frame it in my mind as a thing of my top 10 wine experiences or the most memorable wine experiences that I can think of. And they always seem to be Chardonnay. They are the ones that have stood out most across my kind of career of drinking. And um, and for that reason, I have to put Chardonnay there. I know that for some people, it's it's not the most fashionable variety, but for me, it's the most delicious. To hell with fashion, frankly. Uh, it, it, but it has, as you say, had a, a bad rap in recent times. Um, the nonsense of the ABC movement, the anything but Chardonnay movement, um, which, I mean, to call it a movement, a bit of a joke, really. But anyway, it was, it was kind of crazy. But um, why do you think um, ABC happened? I, I think it was kind of a reaction to what was probably happening in the in particularly Australia, but also California at the time. And this is kind of, you know, late 80s, all across the 90s, maybe even early 2000s to a degree. But you were getting people who were probably over oaking their wines and over oaking their wines when the wines were already super, super ripe. So you ended up with these basically sweet and luscious bombs of Chardonnay that ended up being really quite one-dimensional um, and a bit flat, for want of a better word. And I think probably the best examples of Chardonnay, like Chablis, um, it, it's all about how vivid and vivacious and all the V words that, that it can be. And, you know, consumers often say to you in, in a shop or on a, on a floor, um, it's, you know, I really like Chablis, but I don't like Chardonnay. And, and it's kind of a wine trade laugh, you know, that you're saying, oh, these silly consumers not knowing. But actually, it's a really logical statement. You know, they're, what they're trying to say to you is, I don't like oak Chardonnay, or I've had a crappy oak Chardonnay in the past, and I love Chablis because it's unoaked and it's delicious. So it's a really sensible statement, if anything. And, and I think that ABC probably grew from that over oaking and not doing it in the right way, mainly in the 90s. 
you're absolutely right about that sort of rolling of the eyes in the wine world when people say, oh, I love I love a Chablis, but I don't like a Chardonnay. But yeah, you, they, they, it's really interesting to think about the, the, the statement they're making when they uh, when they say that rather than just just laughing at them. Uh, there speaks a man who who sells wine and understands the importance of, of talking to to consumers um, as a variety. Um, it's very much um, to use the old um, uh, access Mastercard uh, statement, a flexible friend, isn't it, Chardonnay? It really, really is. I mean, it, it really, I think it's it's probably one of the best varieties for showing terroir. So that's that's a kind of starting point. But I think it is the best variety for showing what a winemaker can do. And you can, you know, you can make quite flashy Chardonnays. And I suppose in my mind, I'm thinking kind of Napa, Sonoma, California in general for the flashy Chardonnays. But I have to say, I love those styles, you know, it's a, you know, in, in some ways they themselves are a little bit naff, but, you know, to me, the best white wines in the world, maybe just maybe Riesling sneaks in there as well, but the best white wines in the world tend to um, tend to be oaked. So, you know, the winemaker's hand is really important with Chardonnay, I feel. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Tequila is often described as Mexico's gift to the world, but it's mezcal that has been turning heads more recently in fashion, thanks in large part to its broader range of styles. So what's the difference and which should you choose if you have to choose between them, of course? Well, Dawn Davis is a master of wine. She's buying director for the Whiskey Exchange. Hello, Dawn. Welcome to The Drinking Hour. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, so you're a master of wine, but actually, uh, if there was such a thing as a master of spirits, I think you would be one. And you've said, uh, I, I was doing my research, that actually uh, tequila and mezcal is the closest as a master of wine. How so? So for me, really, it's anything you have that's a product that's grown in the soil, especially for a long period of time. And if you think about agave, agave actually takes between five years plus. I mean, some of these agave plants are so much older. Um, that they have to imbue something that comes from the soil and the climate and the areas they've grown because they spend so much time within those environments. And if we look at wine, it's the same, you know, wine minimum three years before you can even harvest and, and call it wine. Um, and, you know, vines can go to 100 years plus. So I think for me, it's, and having tasted quite a few tequilas and mezcals now over the years, I really think there's definitely a sense of place there's definitely especially with mezcal because they're not just using so with with tequila you're only using the blue agave if it's a hundred percent tequila um if you have mezcal you can use lots and lots of different agave plants and all of them very very unique in flavor so you could taste the madracuche next to an espadin and they're very very different some some give off kind of more fruity characters, some give us more grassy characters. And it's really, really interesting. And you think about the environment in Mexico. Mexico is not just sort of, I think people have in their heads this idea of a desert state or something like that. Mexico is <laughs> not like that. It has highlands, it has valleys, it has humid areas, it has very dry areas, it has areas with sort of rainforest almost, you know. Oh, yeah. It, the same with wine. Wine is affected. Terroir, if we really break it down, is the effect of an area on a plant. 
Um, and I think, you know, with tequila and with more so with mezcal, you really, really get that. Uh, so it's a really good point, and it's one that I hadn't really thought about until I was doing my homework for this. Uh, we should do the fundamentals. You kind of hit upon uh, the fundamentals uh, just now briefly, but the difference between tequila and mezcal. Take us through that. Um, I always like to liken them for those people that know cognac and armagnac um, in a similar way that tequila essentially has to be made, if it's 100% tequila, from a plant. So the cactus is, uh, the agave plant is not a cactus, it's actually from the lily family. And it has to be from, a, for tequila, 100% blue agave, which is a blue agave weber, which is a type of um, agave. For mezcal, you can use many different styles. Also with tequila, it has to come mainly from Jalisco or five different states. And mezcal has a broader area and different areas that you can make mezcal from. Also, there's quite a lot of difference with the process of distillation and, and fermentation and, and the actual production of both. So with tequila, it's a, I don't like to use the word industrial, um, but there is probably um, less sort of sort of small producers making it, even though there are small producers. So it's it tends to be done on a bigger scale, um, normally double distillation in pot stills, um, although other stills are still used now. It has to, It's sometimes it's added yeasts, whereas mezcal, it's much more about natural fermentation, which all, also gives you lots of different flavors. Mezcal actually tends to be a bit more of a rustic process. It's still quite traditionally made. Whereas with mezcal, you know, the steaming of the agave plant is very much done in big autoclaves. Um, with mezcal, they actually cook the, the agave plant. Um, to, so you get this almost in some mezcals, depending on how they've roasted them to release the sugars, you get almost a smokiness, which I think is why some people sort of can't get their heads around mezcal. Um, but yeah, so for me, where you have cognac, which is almost sort of a little bit more sort of, I don't want to use the word made, but it is, it has more human intervention. Um, whereas um, if you look at something like Armagnac, which is a lot more rustic, it's single distillation, it's, you've got a lot more congeners and flavours, that's how I would look at it. You talked earlier on about, um, about the sort of similarities with wine. Um, in one of your educational films uh, that I was uh, looking at, um, they're, they're great by the way, they're really very, very <laughs> good, uh, your YouTube uh, movies, um, you talked about uh, tequila and mezcal really having a sense of place, um, sort of terroir if you like. How does that sort of manifest itself? What do you mean? Um, I think with anything, like if you, I'll take wine as an example, but I think it's, it's the easiest way to explain what terroir is. And so I should be able to taste, one, the grape variety. So if I pick up a glass blind, I should be able to say to you, this is a Pinot Noir. And there's characters that are associated with that grape variety. I then should be able to break it down even further to you and say, okay, this is a Pinot Noir from Burgundy because it has these characters. And that's where I think with spirits, you don't often find that. You'd, you, you can very much maybe tell a distillery character for sure. Um, but I think there's less of a sense of place um, because the, the sense of place in spirits normally comes through the distillery or the methods of production and the people that create it, which is a very different terroir to a wine terroir. If you then look at something like mezcal or tequila, okay, tequila, for example, um, 
if you look at the the, the, the valley, um, it's different soil, it's different climate. You go up high to the highlands, there's a different altitude. That does different things to the plants. It takes a lot, much longer for them to grow and develop. So you're going to get more complexity of flavor. And, you know, if you have different styles of agave, then you're going to get different flavors from those agave because they have different growing seasons. They are different sizes. There's so many things that affect it. And I am definitely not... Um, a good enough tequila expert or mezcal expert to stick my nose in and say this is this, this is this, but I think there are definitely things that I get from certain agaves. So espadin, for example, I always get quite a lot of sort of fruit and a lovely little vegetal note behind, you know. So that for me really says that there has to be, and I'd love to go and really, really spend time just really tasting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, because that's where you really learn to blind taste, but really get a sense of place is if you can stick your nose in the spirit and there's people out there um you know we're very fortunate to work with some amazing people in this industry um that can definitely do that can stick their nose into it and say this is x agave plant or i think this is from x village because they have a character um and part of it is going to come from production there's there's no hiding that but in wine it comes from production but i think there's definitely a sense of place around it and and actually you know mezcal is one of the spirits in the world with things like um armagnac and cognac that are aops they are protected regions of origin and that only happens where you have a sense of place and a sense of style coming from that sense of place so you couldn't make a tequila or a mezcal from anywhere else in the world but that region and that shouts terroir to me the drinking hour on food fm you're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Fashionable, ill-defined and sometimes even controversial, natural wine has punched above its weight in terms of attention at least. So what is it and why do we even need the term? Surely wine is natural anyway, you might say. Well, only up to a point, otherwise you'd probably have vinegar. Natural is a buzzword when it comes to wine, but it's certainly not, on its own at least, an indicator of quality. Confused? Well, you won't be after we've spoken to Freddie Bulmer, who's a buyer for the Wine Society and uh, a regular on the drinking hour, and he joins us now. Hello, Freddie. Hello, David. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm very well, thank you. Even better for you being there. So, (laughs) uh, what do you understand by the descriptor natural wine? Well, that's the thing. I guess that actually it's a descriptor which uh, isn't legally defined, so therefore it's slightly open to interpretation. But for me personally, it generally refers to uh, minimal intervention in the winemaking process. So I guess the idea really is that nothing that shouldn't have been added has been. And uh, and also the same sort of applies in the vineyard really as well. So it's a loosely defined term, but uh, minimal intervention is, is really what springs to mind. And so what sort of things would not be in the wine if it's natural then? So I guess, you know, it really goes to, um, uh, first of all, the the vineyard. So you've got to think about what you're spraying in the vineyard. So a natural wine, generally speaking, isn't going to have, uh, you know, too many, well, if any, pesticides, herbicides, that sort of thing. So really it's about taking a sort of holistic approach in the vineyard, but then also in the winery as well uh the the hot topic i guess is is sulfur um uh, and so natural wines 
again, you know, it's hard to, to really generalise, but natural wines generally uh, won't have any added sulphur um, and won't have any uh, anything else added in the winemaking process, ideally. So we're talking natural yeasts as well, rather than, uh, you know, yeasts that come from a lab, uh, which are cultivated. Um, and so really the idea is just about actually letting the, the fruit do all the work um, and, and therefore the resulting wine essentially just being fermented grape juice uh, and nothing else in there at all. Well, that's the, that's the dream anyway. Why do you think natural has become a buzzword with wine? Do you know, that's a really good question, actually. Um, I think that it's something which uh, is, well, I guess to an extent easily understandable or at least allows a consumer to feel like they understand what that then means for the wine um and it's quite ironic that it should be a, a you know an easily understandable term considering that actually it's there, there's no definition for it there's nothing sort of legal uh that you have to do to be natural um but i think it's something which consumers have managed to latch onto because it gives a bit of an idea about the ethos perhaps of the winemaking process and it's done potentially a little bit of damage uh, to people's perceptions or certainly natural wine lovers perceptions of other wines which don't call themselves natural it's become a buzzword because i think it, it does paint a bit of a picture at least and uh you know without going on about it too much i think wine could do a lot more in terms of actually helping a consumer and providing cues for consumers to to kind of latch onto or understand um and, and natural is an example of of that where actually there's something that people go ah OK, I know what that means. That's a good thing, right? You know, it means that they haven't messed around with the wine and therefore I want to drink that. So it's um, it's quite a, a helpful, a helpful cue, but it's a shame that it's it's not actually defined. You know, it's there's, there's a lot of flex with what it means. Yeah, it's a really good point about something that's actually intended to be uh, helpful and, and positive uh, being so opaque, actually. But, but as you say, natural is not defined. Organic and biodynamic are defined. So just for those who are unsure what those two terms actually mean, taking each individually, uh, how, how can you give us a, uh, a definition of organic and biodynamic? So organic, first of all, I guess you could think of as, as step one here. Um, so organic wine has to be made from organic grapes and to make organic grapes you can't be, uh, as I mentioned before, using certain pesticides, herbicides and that sort of thing uh, in the vineyard. But you can, interestingly, still use copper uh, to spray in the vineyard. And so that's a controversial point in itself, because as much as you might not be uh, allowed to use uh, pesticides, you can still drive up and down your vineyard repeatedly in your tractor spraying copper on the vines, which actually may be just as bad for the environment, if not worse, uh, depending on how many passes in the tractor you do. And then in the in the winery, it actually differs uh, between the EU and the US, but uh, a lot of it is to do with things like how much uh, sulfur you can you can add as well. So organic is is the most common of of these terms, um, but is also one which does still allow a little bit of uh, of uh, winemaking trickery, I suppose. You can still be certified certified organic, and not actually. Uh, be making the wines that the consumer might expect you to be making or in the way that they might expect. Biodynamic goes a step further. So it's a, it introduces a holistic approach. So you 
as a biodynamic winemaker, wouldn't use, again, pesticides, herbicides, anything untoward in the vineyard like that. Um, you would be unlikely to use copper. You know, you're, you're really trying to keep things um, as fresh, clean, natural, I suppose, as possible without actually being natural. <laughs> um, but also uh, biodynamic introduces this, this, as I say, sort of holistic, almost magical element um, whereby people use various preparations made from, uh, you know, just not going into it too much, but various uh, poo of different animals and that sort of thing, you know, burying, burying manure in, in cow horns and, and that sort of thing to make preparations and, and spraying, spraying things on the vine, but spraying things which are actually from nature, you know. Um, so uh, it also involves doing things in certain cycles and, and, and by um, the biodynamic calendar as well. So what you might find with biodynamic winemaking is that a lot of it might seem a bit bonkers, but actually the key thing I personally think is that these are some of the winemakers who are paying the closest attention to what they're doing. And actually that for me, is probably what yields the great results is actually their attention to detail. But natural, natural is a whole nother ball game, I suppose, much more loosely defined than, than either of those two, but really should be uh, a much uh, stricter regime than, than either organic or biodynamic. So you certainly wouldn't be uh, spraying anything in the vineyards if you're a genuinely natural winemaker. And then when it comes to making the wine, uh, the idea would be that no sulfur is added at all. Nothing is is added. In fact, the wines will ferment with natural yeasts only. Um, and uh, the idea really, as I touched on earlier, is about just getting pure you know, grape juice fermented, and that's your wine, and put that in bottle. But of course, some winemakers do add a little bit of sulfur. Uh, you know, I think it's actually personally, I think quite sensible to add a little bit of sulfur at bottling because otherwise the wines go bad. And, and one of the downsides of natural winemaking is that actually you have to be technically very, very able and accomplished as a winemaker in order to avoid faults developing in bottle because part of the process actually um, is is... Part of, part of the process, uh, I, I guess, opens you up to in faults because you're not adding anything in there like sulfur, which is going to prevent them. So that's why natural wines can be very hit and miss. And talking of trends, uh, Cameron Diaz launched uh, a clean wine last year and raised um, a few eyebrows, it's, it's fair to say. Um, what do you understand, if you understand anything at all, by the term <laughs> clean, <laughs> clean wine? Oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah, so this did raise a few eyebrows, mine included. Um, clean wine, I thought, frankly, was an absolute load of nonsense, um, to be honest with you. Um, and also, I don't know if, if, if you saw the video that Cameron Diaz did where she launched her clean wine, but she ended it after having talked for so long about how, you know, all other wines have all sorts of things added in. And we were so shocked by that. And then she says about how she likes to drink it. Was it with lemonade or with soda or with <laughs> with uh, with lime and ice and stuff in there in the glass? And I thought, well, that's I mean, come on. That, that does it get more ridiculous than that? Clean wine, I, I personally don't entertain um, because, again, I think that comes from a place of actually not understanding wine as a whole making the assumption that all wine is bad and has stuff added to it and therefore I'm going to make a wine which doesn't have anything added to it and one thing that really came to mind for me when I first heard that term was actually again like I touched on before a lot of the great wines of the world could class themselves as, as clean wine because they don't have anything added that they don't need to but they they don't call themselves that because they're about good wine first and not good marketing first.
Yeah, and it was good marketing, actually. It was. It certainly got us uh, talking and got uh, plenty of attention. So, uh, Absolutely. Cameron, if she doesn't know a thing or two about winemaking, then she certainly does about uh, marketing. But uh, that's really <laughs> fascinating. Uh, Freddie, thank you very much indeed. Uh, hopefully we've made um, some sense of what is quite a complicated area. Um, it's always a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Thanks for having me, David. I'll speak to you soon. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Thank you to Freddie Bulmer of the Wine Society. And that's it for this compilation of our highlights from the first 11 episodes of The Drinking Hour here on Food FM. Hope you've enjoyed them. And we're back for another 12. We've been commissioned again uh, with episode 13. And that's coming up next week. So see you then. <laughs>